it's Jenny and welcome to Oh It's Cancer. Today I have the absolute privilege of being joined by my psychologist Julie Black who I had the the good fortune of coming across through my time being treated at the Chris O'Brien Life House here in Sydney. Now Julie is a psychologist but I'm not going to take it for granted that everyone knows what a psychologist is, what they do and how they can be just so beneficial to those of us who are going through, whether it be cancer, a chronic illness, or just a really hard time in our lives. And it's somewhat fitting that we're recording this on the 10th of September, 2020, which is actually also Are You OK Day? So in today's episode, I'll be grilling Julie (laughs) on all things related, no pressure, uh, on all things related to the mind, but specifically, you know, if there's any specific, I guess, insights that she has around this whole emotional side of the cancer Mm -hmm. experience, which is often that intangible experience that many of us have uh, whilst we're undergoing treatment and I suppose life after cancer as well where people can't necessarily see what's going on. You know, when you're getting chemo, you lose your hair. When you're getting radiation, you can often see some kind of suntan or burn. People can visibly understand what's going on. But let me tell you, the psychological stuff that goes with cancer is just as fun to deal with. So, Julie, welcome. Thanks, Jenny. Thank you. Thanks for inviting me to do this today. Really excited. So... Maybe we'll start from the start. Can you tell us what exactly does a psychologist do? Do, all right. Well, look, I suppose the first thing to say is that psychologists can work across a whole range of professions and industries. There, um, psychology is really the study of the mind and behaviour, and that then can be applied in everything from advertising to sport to social policy, where... Um, psychologists in this field come from, we tend to work more with psychological distress. Basically, it's clinical psychology, um, specifically in the cancer realm, that's called psycho-oncology, and it's helping people uh, navigate that the emotional distress that, that often goes with a cancer diagnosis. Mm. Mm. Thank you. And I suppose... You know, it's it's quite a broad and it's a really, it's an interesting field, quite mm. frankly, to me. Um, why did you actually decide to go into psychology to start with? You know, what was it that really drew you to this as a profession? Mm-hmm. Look, I think I've always been, um, well, for want of a better word, nosy, <laughs> a little <laughs> bit curious of other people and what makes people tick. Um And I actually initially trained as a journalist. And I think that was also because it gave me a good opportunity to ask people lots of questions and find out what they were doing and why they were doing what they were doing. But I was always most attracted to the stories that were about the human experience. I think people are fascinating. And I think it interests me how we're shaped, not just by our experiences, but also by what we bring to the world from the minute we're born. And then how all our interactions, relationships, experiences contribute to who we are. Mm. So Julie, tell me, why would you recommend or or why do people decide to start seeing a psychologist during their cancer treatment or even after their cancer treatment? It's fair to say that some people go through cancer treatment and never feel the the need or desire to see a psychologist or or counsellor. But in saying that, it is a major life stressor 
and it can bring with it um, feelings of shock, feelings of anxiety, and that can either be a short-term anxiety around treatment. For example, the idea of going into chemotherapy can be really frightening for people. Um, or it can be that longer-term anxiety about what is the outcome of this going to be for me. Um, and then after cancer treatment's finished, even with a good outcome and a good prognosis, there can be anxiety around fear of recurrence is really common. And just adjusting to the world again when you've been through a traumatic experience like cancer can be really difficult, really challenging. And then that's just the cancer, but of course cancer doesn't exist in isolation from everything else that's going on in our lives. And so often it touches upon people's relationships, it can have a large impact financially, um, it can affect work, it can extend into so many aspects of our lives that um, people come for different reasons and um, and really our role is in helping support them with wherever they're at and whatever their specific needs are. Got it. And I remember I think I started seeing you, I think it was towards the end of chemo. So for me, I knew that as I transitioned out of chemo, which was full on and, and really quite intense and regular in terms of the, the contact points at the hospital and into this next phase, which was surgery and then radiation. I just thought I'd need some emotional support because it was a, a, a change or a transition moment. Mm -hmm. But is, is that typical of when you'd start seeing people or do you usually start seeing people at the time of diagnosis? What's normal? <laughs> it was normal. That, and I think that's the thing to say is that there really is no normal. It is very individual and very varied. And some people go through their entire treatment without needing any psychological support. And then after it, they realize they really could do with some help processing everything that they've been through. For other people, it's the reverse, where when they get the initial diagnosis there's an element of shock and adjustment to that and then once treatment starts then might feel that they never want to see us again so the whole idea of our service here at Lifehouse is that it's flexible so um, some people prefer to come uh, regularly throughout treatment some people may only want to come once or twice some people as I say after treatment's finished so it's really about the individual circumstances of that person and where they're at. Mm -hmm. Okay, that makes sense. Thank you. And yeah, I, I guess, you know, upon reflection, it does make sense, you know, even reflecting on my own experiences versus those that I hear from other ladies, you know, specifically within the breast cancer community. I know that some of us have had highs and lows at different moments mm -hmm. during treatment mm -hmm. for different times, because as you say, those emotions are not just about, oh crap, I've got cancer. Mm -hmm. It's what does that actually mean for the different parts of, of me, my mm -hmm. life and, and everything that makes up <laughs> the experience that you're having as a human in the world. So yeah, yeah. that that's, mm -hmm. that's good perspective. Mm -hmm. Now, for those of for those um, folks who are listening at home who maybe haven't seen a psychologist before or are thinking, oh, there's nothing wrong with me, I don't need help or I don't want to talk to a stranger about something that really is quite personal, at a really practical level when someone comes in to see you the first time or maybe virtually via telehealth in these COVID times, what actually happens? Like what's the process? All right. Well, look, again, it works differently in different places, but 
you know, Chris O'Brien Lifehouse, what would probably happen is that you would either be referred to our service by your doctor or you would self-refer if you if you knew about our service and felt that you needed that extra support. Sometimes it's someone's um, GP who will refer them to the service. And then you'll get a phone call. Someone from the team would just um, ask a few questions about where you're at, what, what the main purpose is for seeking support trying to um, ascertain a little bit about what's going to be most helpful for you, what days work for you, that sort of thing. And then on your, the initial appointment is very much what we would call assessment. Um, it would start with the psychologist here telling you a little bit about the service, telling you about our confidentiality and informed consent, which is a really important aspect of psychology you are talking to Australia a stranger and we recognize that we are in a very privileged position there really um, and it's important that the information that is shared is kept as confidential as possible there are some limitations to that so we would talk through that um, and then therapy really is about working out how best to support that person and the concerns they're presenting with. So that first session is really about finding out about the person sitting in front of you and finding out what um, their main areas of concern are. And what we are trying to do there is match the different sort of therapies, I suppose, that we've been trained in to work out where where can we support you best? What's going to be most helpful for you? So if there's someone who comes with a lot of perhaps unhelpful thinking, um, well, it's my fault or I've done something wrong, we might take an, an approach that would perhaps try and replace that with more helpful ways of viewing things, challenging perhaps some of those thoughts. If someone is presenting with um, anxiety, post-diagnosis, pre-chemotherapy, everybody in that situation is going to be anxious. So our role then becomes much more about, well, how do we help this person to sit with that anxiety so that it doesn't become all-consuming, so that it doesn't really um, drag, them, drag them down? So it's really that first session is about finding out, well, what brings you here? How can we best support you through this? Mm. Thank you. That makes sense. So a bit of a random question, actually. I mean, what happens if you're in your meeting or your first appointment with your psychologist and you're just not getting a real good vibe or you feel like you don't have a rapport with your psychologist? What should someone do in that situation? And by the way, I'm really glad that, that I I really felt that rapport with you or we wouldn't be sitting here today. But I know that that's not the case for everyone. Um, and, you know, just like when you meet any human in the world, there are some styles that are just going to more naturally gel or be more cohesive. So any sort of thoughts on how to approach what could be potentially quite an awkward situation if you're just not feeling the vibe with the person that you're being referred to? We absolutely recognise that that is something that, as you say, is it can just be the case as it would be when you meet someone else. And I'm really glad you're not telling me six months <laughs> on that actually Awkward. it was, yeah, that's right, poor rapport. Um, look, we are a team here at, um, at Chris O'Brien where we have 
a team of specialist counsellors and psychologists and we recognise that sometimes the fit's not there and all of us have had the situation where someone has phoned up and said I'd like to make another appointment but I'd rather see someone else and look that could be because you click more with someone um, of a different gender it could be of a different age it could be um, for many reasons and Nobody takes that personally. Nobody's going to feel somehow hurt if that if that happens. It, it literally is, as you say, it's some people are going to connect better than than others. And and look, it doesn't tend to happen that often because I suppose we all have um, training and similar skills and so on. It's not as though somebody is going to come in and have a very different approach or outlook but just as you say we connect more with some people than others and mm -hmm. we understand that and that's okay yeah. and th there's no problem if someone wants to phone up and say um like to make another appointment but like to see someone else <laughs> and that's all right yeah no, I, I won't mm -hmm. do that to you <laughs> okay, after this to extended to period of time or that would be awkward when i see you next that's time right, the live hours no, um so just looking at the if you can say, mm. the entire cancer experience. There are so many emotions, you know, from personal experience that I've already faced so far. But if you had to say, what are some of the classic um, stages or phases that you might expect to go through when you or, or a loved one is, is facing cancer? I think um, going back a little bit to what I said before, I do think that it is it can often be a huge shock for people at the beginning and that shock and adjustment um, can be a very difficult time because it's overwhelming and it's unexpected and you don't know what lies ahead. What we often find is that once treatment starts, some of that initial sense of overwhelm and anxiety drops off is often the case because the unknown is always more terrifying to us as human beings than the known. So for example, with chemotherapy, we often see a spike in anxiety before treatment starts, but once sessions are underway, that often gets a lot better. You know what to expect, you know yeah. what your side effects are, you learn how to manage them, the anxiety uh, tends to drop off. Mm -hmm. um, so that's a common one. There are, of course, and this can be at any stage, there are the bigger sort of existential questions about what does this mean for me and, 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 and what does it mean for my life and um, am I going to have a good outcome or am I not? And that's, um, and I think that's natural to face with, with a potential potentially life-threatening illness like cancer. I mean, th that question is going through everybody's head. Am I going to survive this? Am I not? And that is um, that is something that comes up often. Then there's um, issues around control and uncertainty. I notice you laughing there. We won't disclose any personal information. But for a lot of us, and, and certainly mm -hmm. for anxiety, anxiety likes control. It likes certainty. And... Mm -hmm. um, and of course, with a cancer diagnosis, there's a lot of uncertainty, uncertainty about how we're going, we're going to react to treatments, mm. uncertainty regarding the outcome, and also a bit of a loss of control around, around that. Mm. You know, you can't control it in the same ways that you can control other aspects of your life. Mm. And that in itself can be very anxiety provoking for people. So that is something that we would commonly 
address in therapy and look at ways of sitting with that more easily. Uh, look, low mood can happen if treatment has been long and people are getting fed up, maybe um, uh, not being able to work, maybe it has impacted their relationships, maybe they're suffering a lot of side effects. It's not uncommon for people to get a bit of depression and, and, and sadness around that, which is something we might help with too. And then, as I said, after treatment, there can be a real sense of adjustment back into the real world again. You, it's, a, it's a bit like going through a storm where you're uprooted, you feel um, less secure, less confident, less stable in the world after cancer treatment. And normally that comes back with time. Um, but again, there's a role, I think, for psychologists and counsellors to help people with that adjustment. Then, then of, of course, there's things, for example, like, like a lot of the people we see have children. Um, and, and, and a big concern for many of our patients here is how to talk to their children about cancer and what information to share or not share. And, and so that's, again, something that often comes up in therapy here. So mm. quite varied. Issues around body image, issues around sexuality, Cancer really can impact a lot of different aspects of our lives. I completely, yes, I was chuckling not so subtly when you were talking about the, you know, the, the, the loss of confidence mm. and the, the change in the amount of control that you have over not just your body but what you thought your life was. So, yeah, maybe maybe it's hitting, hitting home there, Julie, mm, yeah. <laughs> which is, yeah. you know, probably for a lot of you listening, um, something that's quite familiar and I think it's really positive that you're able to articulate that for us. Mm -hmm. Now, I know that there's also a lot of people that listen to this podcast who are friends and family of those facing cancer or, again, another chronic illness or, or challenging situation in life. Mm -hmm. And it is Are You OK Day? So mm -hmm. I'd just like to zoom in on that for a little bit. Are there any particular um, strategies or just things that you could suggest if you're a family member or a friend or you're in a relationship with someone who's facing, let's just say, cancer, and you can see that they're just not coping from a mental health perspective? Like, what do you do? I mean, mm -hmm. are you okay? And then what? Mm -hmm. <laughs> How do you help someone? Can you help them even? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Look, I think that... Um I'd like to acknowledge as well, are you okay, Day? It, it, it is really important when you feel that someone might be struggling that you give them that opportunity to open up. And often it's providing someone with that opportunity to share how they're feeling that is the first step for them to get help and support. With cancer treatment, friends, family, caterers are often very involved in treatment and are often very affected by the cancer too because they have their own fears and their own worries around that. And for that reason, our service here also is available to family members in recognition of the amount of stress and distress that carers and loved ones can experience going through this. Um, in terms of how family and friends can support someone with cancer, I like to encourage them to seek their, their guidance really from the person who has cancer because, again, it's different for everybody. Some people really benefit from talking a lot about their treatment and their cancer and what they're going through. And some people don't. They just want to go on with life as normal, and that's okay. 
that's whatever response you have that works for you is okay. So um, I think it's about saying to you, to your friends or to your family member, look, I'm here for you. Let me know if you want to talk about it. And, but if you don't, that's okay as well. Mm -hmm. um, I think there's a lot of practical support that can be offered. And that's through things like um, attending appointments with someone, giving them a lift to the hospital. Parking can often be really difficult. Um, it can, of course, I think probably more commonly known, helping with meals when someone is going through chemotherapy can be really helpful because who has the motivation to be cooking and doing things like that? For someone with children, it might be helping to pick them up from school or to organize play dates, that sort of thing. Um, and then I think the, the area perhaps to be a little bit more cautious around is that, of course, everybody wants to be hopeful of a positive outcome. But one thing I do hear is that sometimes people can feel, people with cancer can feel that those around them are so um, determined that they should be strong or should be positive or should be optimistic that it doesn't leave them any room to express really valid fears and concerns that they might be having. Mm. Like if you're telling me, um, you'll be fine, you'll be fine, just be strong, just be positive. It doesn't allow me the space to say to you, well, actually, I'm really scared about this or not being around for that. And so although um, those thoughts often come from a really positive, well-intentioned place, they can often have the opposite effect of, of leaving the patient feel a little bit invalidated that they're perhaps not feeling strong or not feeling very positive today, but feel that they can't share that. Mm. I don't know if that was something that you ever found or... I was, I was just talking about this with someone this morning, actually. I have definitely felt, you know, right from the start that... I'm not going to say obligation because I didn't really take it on, but definitely an expectation from some people that you will beat this, you will be the inspiration, you'll be the role model, when quite frankly sometimes I just want to go home and cry or, you know, be lazy and just lie on the couch and not do anything or not say anything, that when people ask you, oh, how are you going, you have to go, yeah, good, thanks, mm -hmm. you know. Um, which is not really that helpful. So I completely agree that having the space to be able to express truly how you're feeling, how you're experiencing things, even if it's just recounting, as you say, treatment today included X, Y and Z, allowing the person the time and the space to just say everything that they need to can be really so helpful. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that, you know, my own experience, I've watched people not have the words to say once you say, oh, actually, I'm not okay. They kind of look at you awkwardly and, ah, okay, mm -hmm. cool. Like, why did I ask this girl the question? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, but for those who then follow it up with any yeah, other question, tell me more it's amazing. Mm -hmm. and, it. I, and I think reinforcing that point that you made earlier around, you know, the support that others can give, it could be that practical support. So let's use the example of, you know, cooking a meal for someone during chemo. And mm -hmm. I have to say my sister did a lot mm -hmm. of that for me all those months ago, it's not just the act of bringing the meal that's so helpful, but it's that you're reducing the mental load on the person whilst they're going through a really hard time as well as the actual physical preparation of yeah. the food because mm -hmm. it's not just 
I'll just cook a meal. It's well, what am I going to? Yeah, what am I going to make? Can mm-hmm. I go to the shops? Do I have all the ingredients? We're in COVID. I don't want to face the public. Um, what am I going to store it in? Oh, I have to clean out the fridge. All those mm-hmm. other thoughts yeah. that go along with yeah. it can seem quite overwhelming mm-hmm. during this whole cancer thing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Along with everything else, that's true. And and I think for this year as well, the the whole. Um, COVID virus has added another element to that where people have felt even more um, cautious about going to shops and going out and about and perhaps being even more reliant on that help and support of others. So it's, it's very important. And of course, some people, for whatever reason, don't have that around them. And that's where, again, it can be really important to access the supports that are available, like our service, because we do know and, and research has shown that that social support is so important mm. in getting through cancer treatment. So true. Mm. Now, I remember that when we first connected, <laughs> it was via telehealth. So mm-hmm. I actually only met Julie, what, three weeks ago for the first time in person physically, which was so cool. Yeah. Um So we had our appointments via telehealth, which meant that we connected via, I had my mobile phone webcam switched on and Julie, I think you must have been Mm -hmm. sitting just over there with the webcam on so we could see each other, we could hear each other. Um, So for me, I felt like I was still able to connect, connect with you. Have there been any sort of, you know, interesting learnings or tips that you'd have for people that are perhaps approaching a a telehealth session for the first time and maybe aren't sure what to expect? Yes, look, it's been very interesting for all of us here going to telehealth because in these sessions you are often discussing very personal, intimate matters and it can feel a little bit less close to be doing that over the um, over the internet for some people or online. Some, some people like you, Jenny, adapt to it really well. You're very confident with technology and very happy to be online. For other people, they have actually said, no, I really only want to do face-to-face. And when that's mm-hmm. not available, I don't want to come in. And I completely respect that because for some people, they really want to be in that room to share their fears, their doubts, their insecurities, to, to sit with someone face-to-face. Mm. Um, and I'm thinking particularly around grief and loss and so on. It can, it can sometimes be a little bit more difficult when you are removed mm. through technology. And some people just don't have the technology available to them. And we've, um, we've tried to get around that with, with phone consults and so on. I think you do lose something when you don't have the video because you realise how much we actually communicate via visual cues and so on. Um, But in saying that, I think the technology has also really opened up our service to a lot of people who wouldn't have otherwise accessed it. And that's people who might um, either have problems with mobility or people, I mean, people come to Chris O'Brien Lifehouse from far and wide, you know, really, um, we have a lot of people coming from rural areas who yeah, might come and yeah, yeah. stay locally for their treatment, but not be here to do ongoing appointments. And mm-hmm. so we've really found that we've been able to connect with them quite well over Zoom. And so that's, that's been a great realisation that we can actually see people that we wouldn't have otherwise seen mm-hmm. because of um, technology. That's a really so definitely point. pros and cons. Yeah. Mm. And I'm going to touch on a, a potentially awkward conversation or, or an awkward part of the, the treatment journey is that, 
cancer ain't cheap. <laughs> um, and, you know, when you're looking at <laughs> all the moments that you're facing, for some people they might be worried about how do I pay mm-hmm. to see a psychologist. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I know I'm I'm not paying um, because I had a referral. Is that the case? Is this how most people would access psychology without having to pay for it during cancer? They get a referral and that way it's covered? Yeah, look, at this stage, um, psych oncology services at Chris O'Brien Lifehouse don't involve a fee. Um, Normally, the the number of sessions varies. We we normally think that it would be around four to six sessions, sometimes longer. Um, There is some discussion around whether we would move to a model where it would be available via mental health plan, which would require a referral from your GP. But again, there wouldn't be a gap on that. But at this stage, um, you can either ask for a referral from your from your GP, from your treating doctor here at Lifehouse, or you can self-refer and and there would be no cost involved. Mm. That's good to know. So I think, you know, that there's there's all the drugs that we need, the surgeries, the radiations and whatnot. That's the physical side. But, geez, if you get through all that and we haven't fixed up that mental side of our our health, that could be really hard to then go on to live a really fulfilling and meaningful life. So it's, it's good to know that we can, you know, we're really lucky in Australia um, that we can access these sorts of yeah. other treatments mm-hmm. as well. Mm-hmm. So just a couple more questions. I'm just mm-hmm. conscious of time. Yeah. Um, life after cancer. Um, geez, it's it's an interesting time for me personally at the moment. You know, I'm still getting my Herceptin injections every three weeks. I was upstairs getting a stab in the thigh this morning. Um, me, like many other ladies and others in the community, I'm having tamoxifen every day for the next however many years. I'm just trying to, I guess, readjust to what is this life mm-hmm. now that I've I've done the whole chemo thing, I've done surgery, done radiation. I've quite frankly had enough blood tests to last me a lifetime and I don't really wish to make coming to the hospital a regular feature of life. So the emotional um, adjustment, I suppose, for me is feeling quite significant. Is this... Is this normal? Yeah. Please tell me it is. <laughs> You'll be pleased to know it's certainly not unusual. And look, again, as I've said before, you know, these things can be very individual. And it's interesting how after uh, cancer treatment has finished, some people don't want to think about it again at all. They just want to get on with life and almost... Um, uh, put, put a, a, a wall there, cancer was in the past and, and now I'm getting on with life and I'm not thinking about it at all. Other people become very involved, for example, in fundraising, in raising awareness around cancer, and that can be really helpful too. So different approaches for different people. There are some common features, I suppose you would say, that we often see, but I would again um, put that caveat that it's a little bit different for everyone. It's not unusual for people to feel after cancer treatment, what does this mean for the rest of my life? A a period where they start to question their values, question what they want. Some people wonder about making bigger decisions like do I want to move overseas or change chuck in my job or travel around the world in um, a combi van. Um, (laughs) And other people really just want to go back to regain a sense of normality like they had before. 
And I suppose what we would say generally is to give it some time because really in that first year, it is about recovering from a traumatic experience and it is about finding your sense of stability in the world again and looking around. And in that time, you'll probably reassess some things and other things you might want to keep the same and some things you might want to change. And it it takes it can take some time. It can take some time. And and it's interesting to me that some people say that they recognize some positives from the whole experience. They can look at their life before and think, well, actually, um, I'm going to do that differently now or, you know, I'm not going to uh, spend so much time on this aspect and I'm going to prioritize something else. And that can be quite nice to hear because cancer can take so much. There can be so much loss around cancer um, that it can be quite nice to hear that sometimes there can be some positives to, to come out of this experience as well. Mm. But it is, it's an adjustment just as it's an adjustment at the beginning after receiving a diagnosis. There's another adjustment at the end to trying to go back to so-called normal life when you don't necessarily feel the same as you did before. Mm. So people often say that you know, they can get together with friends again and they feel they don't connect in quite the same way or that they're on a different wavelength. I, I have one colleague and she always refers to I think it's the matrix where some people have taken the blue pill and some the pink pill and you feel a little bit at odds with everybody and often that that passes with time and other and when it doesn't it's often giving you information that can be quite useful mm. about what you do and do, don't want in your life going forward. Mm. Mm. A lot of really familiar things you're just mentioning there. Thank you. And one final question, again, in the spirit of it being Are You OK Day? And, you know, I'm wondering how does a psychologist actually keep themselves, you know, really grounded and how do you re-energise after you've had a full-on moment or a full-on day? Yeah, look, it's interesting you say really <laughs> grounded. I'm not sure I would say that I keep myself <laughs> really grounded. But... It certainly goes without saying that in this profession, self-care is a big, um, a big topic because yeah. it is recognised that if you are legitimately sharing experiences with people, when I say sharing experiences, I suppose you are in that position that really is quite privileged of going through a journey alongside someone. Mm. And of course, within that, there can be a lot of distress and a lot of sadness and loss um, and I think what we recognize here is the importance of being part of a team and it really mm. helps having a supportive team around you I think for psychologists working in private practice it can be a little bit more difficult and a little bit more um, important that they find other means outside work of self-care yeah. and for some people it, it is it was similar as it would be for you it would be about either exercise connecting with nature taking time to reflect it's about acknowledging and not just taking all that on board without pausing to think mm. things through you know I think um and it, it, it's a big topic within psychology about making sure that self-care is always, the importance of it is recognised because burnout 
is is a danger within the profession. But funnily enough, in, in this particular field here, I find that we also gain a lot. There is a lot of um, privilege and a lot of positives for us to come out of being alongside people going through such a difficult time. Mm. Mm. So I think we gain as well. (laughs) It's a really interesting point you make, isn't it? We often associate, as you said, cancer with that sense of loss, but with any tough moment or experience in life, although in the moment it can feel you know, quite intense that you're leaving things behind. As you say, there is always something that we can gain, whether or not we're willing to accept that or, or have the perspective to be able to acknowledge that in the moment. It's a different question mm-hmm. altogether. Mm-hmm. So, Julie, thank you so much for agreeing and, you know, giving me some of your valuable <laughs> time today. It was an absolute pleasure. Uh, really, really useful information. And for those of you who are listening at home, I hope this has shed a little bit of light about what goes on behind the closed doors uh, when you go and see your psychologist, a strong encouragement to have a chat to someone, you know, start by chatting with a friend or, or a family member if you're not quite feeling yourself and you're not sure what to do. Have a look. And I, I, I usually say stay off Dr. Google, but go on there and search Are You OK? or Lifeline. There are so many resources available in this day and age, some of them that you can even contact via text message to get that first level of support. Just exploring what might be, I suppose, out there and relevant and useful for you is the first really brave step that you can do when you feel that life's just feeling like that little bit too much. And you know what? It's normal. It happens to every single person in the world. And in this day and age, there's absolutely no shame about saying, you know what? I I do need a little bit of help. So it's Are You OK Day. Julie Black, thank you very much. Thank you very much um, for giving me the opportunity. Oh, I'll have you back any time. <laughs> um, but we'll leave it there for now. So thanks for listening, everyone. Uh, it's Jenny. You've been listening to Oh, It's Cancer.